This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for May 8th, 2017. In this podcast, I'm talking to Chris Tatum. He's the presenter of the Cross-Examined Life podcast. But in this show, I'll be cross-examining him on his views on what's called the Swedish model to attempt to prohibit prostitution. Enjoy the interview. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. On the line now, I have Chris Tatum. He's the host of the Cross-Examined Life podcast. And we were going to talk about prostitution. And Chris brought to my attention a paper by Michelle Madden Dempsey called How to Argue About Prostitution. Um, Chris, how, what does she say about prostitution and arguing about it in that paper? Dempsey makes a really good point about how to discuss prostitution in that paper that I'll just mention briefly and then get off of uh, to kind of make some bigger points. But mm-hmm. essentially, she says, she says that there's uh, kind of two types of people who argue about prostitution. There's those who gather empirical evidence and uh, base their arguments on observations about the way that prostitution is practiced as an activity. And they you know, argue that it should or shouldn't happen because of those observations. And then there's other individuals who argue on more philosophical grounds um, and say, you know, what is the nature of consent? And, you know, when can we be sure that that consent is present? And so what she really says is you have to be careful which discipline you're in. Um, are you the, in the empirical discipline of gathering facts or are you in the philosophical discipline? Um, and if you're moving from between one or the other, you need to indicate that to your, you know, to your readers or to your audience. Okay, well, let's, let's look at that. Uh, and just to get cards on the table, is she and are you in favor or against legalized prostitution? I side with Dempsey in being opposed to legalized prostitution in that uh, it, the purchase of sex uh, ought to be prohibited. Mm-hmm. And the seller of sex uh, should not be considered a criminal. Okay. Um, that's uh, um, what is sometimes called the Scandinavian model, because some countries, um, in particular Sweden, in Scandinavia, have changed their laws so that where prostitution occurs, the customer, typically the male, uh, is committing a crime, but the prostitute is not. And... Um, that has been promoted by some people as a more progressive way to protect women. Um, my, I suppose my first question is, does she present both uh, uh, real world and philosophical arguments to support her? Well, in that particular paper, and that was kind of one of the reasons I didn't, um, you know, want to get into it too deeply is that she doesn't even really get to that point of making those arguments for or against in the uh, article, it's really simply about how to discuss it on either side and the importance of your methodological approach. Yeah, and th- this is uh, 
difficult thing because, and you can, I don't want to get into the drugs war, but you do get this in uh, the drugs debate as well. You will have typically on one side people who say, this is how society should be. And on another side, you have people saying, yeah, but no society has ever managed to do that and trying to get there can be more damaging. So for example, where you have prohibition of prostitution in whatever way, is it true that you drive prostitution underground and make it more harming to, uh, and more harmful, particularly more harmful to women? How do you think what you're proposing would minimize harm, Chris? I think that what I'm proposing would minimize harm because it is a statement by the society that adopts that model mm-hmm. that the repeated victimization of women working in prostitution by the buyers is not acceptable and it won't be furthered and it won't be encouraged and it won't be an economic model in that country and you're well, okay, hold, let me, let me, hold on there for a second, because you see sure. that's a statement by society. Laws aren't meant to be statements by societies. Laws are meant to be rules that are enforced. And, you know, we had a statement by society that drunkenness and, and uh, alcoholism uh, was not acceptable in the 19, uh, in 1920s. Uh, that statement by society had real-world effects that were very, very damaging. It did, and it was ultimately found that society didn't want to get behind that, that that the the country that adopted that said, this isn't really who we are. We're not a dry society, and, and we reject this idea, and it was you know overturned years later. Yeah. Um, and so I think that um, you know to adopt this is to say, this is what we want to be and what we want to stand for, and if after trying it, everyone kind of determines, you know, this has had so many negative consequences that we can't continue doing this. Well, fine. And, you know, we can vote on it and we can decide that we don't want to go down that path. Um, But what I'm saying is we need to give this a try. uh, Okay. Hold on for a second. I think it's a very weak philosophical argument to say that you're not allowed to be opposed to something because we need to give it a try. We should have a rational analysis of what the, the likely effects of the law are. And, And I avoided saying it before, but the people also uh, who are in favor of drug prohibition, be it marijuana or any other drug, they say that society needs to make a statement that these drugs uh, aren't good for you. Now, taking probably any recreational drug on the whole isn't isn't that good for your health. Uh, there's, There's a wide variation within that. But the point is that Laws aren't for making a statement. That's not what laws are for. Well, practically, that's not what they're for. But the way that laws are enforced sends a statement to particular individuals about what is and is not tolerated in a society. Well, well it may, or it, you know, you might send them a statement by hiring hiring a, a crop duster plane and you know, writing it in the sky. Whether laws, whether or not laws do send a statement, that's not their primary purpose. And if you say, as I think happens with the drug laws, it doesn't matter how much damage they do because we need to make a statement. I'd say, you know, take out an ad in the local newspaper to make, if you want to make a statement, if you want to regulate how society functions, then you, you, that's what you do through a law. 
Yeah, and and perhaps I was not being as precise as I could have been when I said make a statement that we don't want to, you know, further the victimization of these women. What I'm really saying is we don't want to further the victimization of these women. And so we need laws that protect them. Okay, so that's that's an important distinction. So, so would you then agree that if a particular law made a statement that really needed to be said, really, you know, a statement that really needed to be made, but it had a damaging effect, then that's not a, a law that we should have on the books. Yes, I agree with that. Okay, okay. The question then is: Does legally prohibiting the inclusion of money in the in in the transaction for the want of uh, want of any other word in the transaction that is sex. Why is it that society needs to do that? I think the answer to that is based in my observation and conclusion that we live in a world that's fundamentally based on a patriarchy, mm-hmm. where men are ascribed a power and ability to control, sometimes just in very small ways, sometimes in much more significant ways, um, in many situations, not in every, but very often. Mm-hmm. And there's a belief, um, not just on the part of men or the part of you know law enforcement, but I mean, even some women, that men ought to get what they want or what they feel entitled to. And we see this in the case of uh, rape within marriages. I mean, it's only oh, been. Oh no! Hold on! Know, hold on recently. for a second! Hold on for a second! You're, you're rolling up one thing that uh, you know a, a vision of society with individuals who commit a crime. Those are two very different, uh, two very different things. What I'm, what I was getting at there was mm-hmm. not individuals who would commit a crime, but I was saying the societal reluctance to recognize rape within marriage uh-huh. as a crime. Uh, yes, yes, so marital rape was not a crime in many states up till quite recently. Exactly. And so that reluctance to make that a crime demonstrates my point that we kind of live in a society where men are afforded that which they want and that which they feel entitled to. That's now. I've, I've, people will have come across this word, the patriarchy, and it's, it's, it's a phrase that is used in feminist discourse very often. Isn't that essentially a conspiracy theory? I don't think it's a conspiracy theory at well, all. Well, well if Alex Jones was ranting about the Illuminati, who are to blame for everything that he sees as ill in the world, how is that qualitatively different to a third wave feminist saying that the patriarchy is responsible for what is everything that's wrong in the world? Well, it's not a kind of smaller group of people who are in a you know, corner huddled somewhere making plans like the Illuminati might be thought to be. Well, that's, um, that's exactly how, how it's portrayed by a lot of feminists. Well, I think, I think what, if, if you read the literature, what they're talking about is the patriarchy is the overall assumptions and opinions and assertions of men as a gender mm-hmm. over time and the way that they've been asserting themselves. And so it's not, a small group. It's not happening on the sides or in back rooms. This is overt. This is in, you know, every major corporation on the planet is, you know, uh, this is, this is going on. This is, uh, uh, influencing how decisions are being made at the 
you know, highest levels of government and business around our world. That, okay, that, there, that, there exists sexism. There is no question about that. There exists sexism, and up to recently that was enshrined in many laws, much less uh, so now, probably not at all, in most Western countries. Now, that sexism victimized or certainly diminished the rights of women in many, many cases, but also in many cases men. And to the extent that sexism still exists in society, though probably not in the laws, it's not entirely clear to me that it takes away the rights of women exclusively. And if you look at things, for example, uh, the number of deaths and injuries in the workplace, if you look at uh, the way that um, um, courts award custody of children uh, uh, in a divorce, if you look at just the number of casualties in war, overwhelmingly males are disadvantaged in all of those. But let's focus back on the on the on the um, on the prostitution. There are some uh, women who have worked in prostitution who object to this, who object to prohibition and even this Swedish model of prostitution, of um, prohibiting po- prostitution by criminalizing the buyer. There are some women who, who have worked as prostitutes or maybe currently do, who very much object to that. What would you say to them? Well, I would say that they, in some cases, may be failing to focus on a very real power dynamic in which they are still disadvantaged and not empowered the way that they could be if they were working in another industry. Okay. I so so that, do, am, I, am I right in saying then, Chris, uh, that you're coming along to someone who's working, uh, to a woman who's working as a prostitute, and you uh, are able to tell them that they don't know what's good for them? I know it sounds like that's what I'm saying, and I think to a degree, there is a little bit of that paternalistic um, kind of recommendation or prohibition going on. But if I could just qualify it, sure. um, I think that in the bedroom, particularly around matters of sexuality, there has long been a tradition, I'm talking about millennia, of men getting what they want and women's needs or desires being placed in the back burner. Mm-hmm. And I think that that doesn't really change when you take that intimacy in the bedroom and build a financial transaction around it. Mm-hmm. And so a woman could say, well, this is the way that I make money and this is what I'm choosing to do because you know I want to bring in this income. But that doesn't take away from that disparate power dynamic going on when she gets in the bedroom and there's a financial transaction built around it. It's still there. She's just choosing it the way someone could choose any other thing that might be bad for them. How how is that compared to the power dynamic when somebody has to show up eight or nine hours a day and flip burgers in McDonald's and do something that they don't particularly want to do because of the financial pressure? Well, I think that there's a particular sense, again, around matters of sexuality, um, that men are in control, that men get what they want and the woman has to do basically the man's bidding. Sure, that, could, that can be true in many workplaces. It could, but I think it's much more so the tr- 
I think it's more so the case in uh, sexuality and sexual behavior than in any other instances or any other industries. And I think that um, what would be a well-defined financial transaction in the bedroom can very quickly become in this, you know, slippery slope kind of way, a whole different activity that let's say the woman never intended because of the way things tend to escalate in the bedroom, the way that they don't when you're flipping burgers. I've seen one quote, which I thought was quite amusing and quite, quite uh, relevant to this discussion, which said that in the case of prostitution, men aren't paying women to have sex. Men are paying women to go away afterwards. And I, where I think the level of maturity of of, of people uh, and men in particular in society is relevant to this is that the financial transaction can very often replace an emotional attachment that um, many men are not up to the social engagement that that is needed with a with a you know with a girlfriend or boyfriend. Do you think that's a part of the dynamic there? Are you sort of almost suggesting this is like an outlet for someone who might not be kind of socially conditioned to get the same thing in a more friendly kind of way? Yeah, or that having sex with someone generates a series of other social obligations that they're trying to escape. And if they can buy off that, that social obligation with money rather than with, uh, with, uh, an emotional connection, that that's what's, uh, the, the perceived value of it. Sure. And I understand how that is a perceived value. I think ultimately though, that's creating a value system that I don't want in the society that I live in and raise my kids in. And to be specific, that's valuing kind of having my desire satisfied over valuing what the thing in and of itself intrinsically is. Okay. Well, that's, that's not, that's not something you want in the society that you live in. But who are you to say that? I mean, you can live your life. You're not required either to be a prostitute or to to visit a prostitute. Is there a justification of you overruling other people's desires? People might not like you making a podcast, but they don't interfere with you. Well, I think reducing intimacy to a transaction is a road that collectively as a society, and I mean that on a global level, uh-huh. is a road that we don't want to go down on. That Who, we, but again, who's we? You mean you? Well, no, I Somebody th- else might, might, might be perfectly comfortable going down, that trans- going down that road. They may be, but what my entire argument is suggesting is that if we all stop and think about this very critically, that we would realize that that's really a road we don't want to be on. Aside, to, to leave that section of it aside, it has been observed, certainly in the past, that legal prohibitions on prostitution have entirely failed to wipe out prostitution, but they have succeeded in making prostitution much more dangerous for women who, for whatever reason, are involved in prostitution. Do you think that there's a moral argument against prohibition there that you that it, when it can have the direct effect of putting women at risk? That's a very difficult question. And it, I mean, it's a great question because I think that obviously my whole argument is centered around not putting these women at further risk. And so 
if what I'm proposing has the practical result of um, driving their activities underground, then no, I wouldn't continue to support it. My sense is, and from what I've read of what's going on in Scandinavia, particularly Sweden, Uh is that when this process is, um, or I should say when this legal scheme is enacted, we see a decline in prostitution. And you're right, not an elimination, probably never an elimination, but a decline in the instances of prostitution. And we see women who are now uh, no longer seen as criminals, but their buyers are. We see them treated as almost victims of a crime, victims of exploitation who can seek services, get help and, you know, find uh, alternative uh, ways of, you know, um, employment, alternative forms of employment instead of what they were doing previously. Okay. And, uh, I, I think that that, uh, that that has not existed for a sufficient amount of time in order to make, you know, in order for statistics to be available. But I, I think the general trend is for fewer women to be involved in more dangerous prostitution because you have, of course, women who are drug addicts, women who, for other reasons, um, are compelled into prostitution. They then, in order not to, in, in order to, to get their client, have to exist in a much grayer world and agree to a, a degree of, uh, a degree of, of, um, covert activity that they would not normally like to do with somebody who is uh, the, you know, who could be a dangerous client. Sure. I acknowledge that that's probably a reality. Yeah. So, so it would need to be to, to demonstrate an overall net significant reduction in, in danger to women in order to be justified, wouldn't it? It would. Okay. And as, since we don't have the statistics, and I think there has been some work done on this, but because these laws in Sweden are quite new, it, you know, you're not getting a long-term effect. But would you accept that if it turned out that the net effect was more violence against women or more risk to women who were in prostitution, would you accept that's probably not a good path to go down? Only if there's more women in these violent situations, not if what you said originally is the case, that there's fewer women in particularly more violent situations. Well, what, what, I, what I was saying was that you have fewer women who are prostitutes, but those fewer women are in a more dangerous, more violent environment. So the the, the total amount of uh, uh, violence c- could well be increased, even though it's focused on a smaller number of women. I guess this is going to sound cold and unfeeling, but my sense is that I would still support the prohibition of prostitution, understanding that that higher level of violence to a smaller number of women will be, unfortunately, short-lived. How would you how would you say short-lived? Well, the uh, you're, you're you're looking to, towards towards uh, uh, an elimination of prostitution. Yes, but that's, I mean, what I meant was, you know, the average lifespan of someone working in prostitution, again, from the scant data that exists, is about five years. And so if you're now saying that a woman working in prostitution is going to be subjected to a higher than average level of violence because there's fewer people working in prostitution, Mm -hmm. then, you know, her lifespan has now gone from five years to maybe three years. Uh, Okay. Um, That that, that wasn't, I I don't think... 
it is feasible that no new women will enter prostitution who are not, just because of, of those new laws. And that, that, that certainly hasn't been demonstrated. What has happened is that prostitution has been driven underground, but prostitution has existed underground for decades uh, in many societies. Sure. I just don't think that, I mean, I, I understand the underground argument and that it may be the case. I mean, what you're proposing may be the case that there's a, a greater quantity of violence when prostitution is prohibited and sort of driven underground. I mean, um, I, I do believe that there's data out there to, con- to contradict that, but let's even say that that's the case. I think that we can't use the underground argument to say, well, let's just permit this. Let's just allow it because we're always in any society, you're going to have things that are underground, that are taboo, that are prohibited. So far as I know, there hasn't been any society in history that has successfully uh, suppressed prostitution. Do you think uh, that that's feasible in the future? I think that women who work in prostitution fundamentally want freedom to choose how they earn their income. And the same might be said of someone flipping burgers. And I think that we have to work on both of those industries to give those individuals more options in how they're going to earn an income. Yes, but but, I, but, but no, focus on, on the question. It, I mean, as far as I know, and I don't think anybody can contradict it, no society has ever successfully suppressed prostitution. But you could suppress an awful lot of freedoms along the way in the effort to do that, couldn't you? You could. You could. And, and I agree. No society has ever suppressed prostitution. And I think, you know, what we're, what any sort of prohibition is looking for I mean, I think any prohibition or any advocates for a prohibition have to understand that they're never going to achieve 100%, but you're going to get close. And you might even get closer with each passing year. And that's that's the goal here is to get closer with each passing year, acknowledging that we'll never eliminate it 100%. Chris Tatum, host of the Cross-Examined Life podcast. That's available at crossexaminedlife.com. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you so much for having me, William. It was a pleasure. Never miss a show. Follow at Challenging O on Twitter and like Challenging Opinions on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. That's all for the Challenging Opinions podcast published on May 8th, 2017. I have links in the show notes to Chris's podcast, to the paper we discussed, and other references to things that we discussed during the show. Do you know someone who I should interview? What topics should I be covering? I'd be really interested to hear your feedback. If you like the podcast, there's one thing that you could do that would really help other people to find it. Go on iTunes, give the podcast a rating, and write a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page. Also, please like the show on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow the show at ChallengingO, and you can follow Chris Tatum at CEL Podcast. And most importantly, subscribe to the show for free. You can use iTunes if you're an Apple person or Google Play Music if you're on Android. There's links for both of those and an RSS feed if you use that. And because I know that not everybody uses podcast software, a lot of you just listen on the website, I've put a new feature on the website where you can follow the show. You just enter your email address and you get a simple email with a link to listen each time a new podcast goes online. No spam, I promise. 
You can find all of that or get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming on Wednesday, that's May 10th, I'll have an interview with Todd Feinberg, the Conservative talk show host, about just how well government can do its job. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Thank you.